May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please. Finally, after several weeks of among the most challenging texts in Scripture, we have one that doesn't throw us back on our heels. There are no storms, no Pharisees or scribes, no outcast woman from Canaan, and no demonically possessed daughter. I don't know about you, but I'm ready for a break. And so this morning, we have the seemingly innocuous account of Peter's profession of Jesus as the son of the living God, and Jesus' magnanimous grant of power and authority to him in response. On Peter's leadership, the church will be built and grow, and nothing, not even the gates of hell, will stop it. So, easy text, good summary of the key points, and a short sermon thank you, amen. <laughs> not so fast. Wait a minute. Please, help me understand this. Isn't this the same Peter who two weeks ago began to walk toward Jesus on the Sea of Galilee only to be frightened by the first burst of wind? Started to drown and need Jesus' rescue to save him? Isn't this the same Peter who last week joined with the other disciples in the harsh rejection of the woman from Canaan who sought only Jesus' mercy for her mentally ill daughter? And isn't this the same Peter who later will deny even knowing Jesus, let alone worshiping him? So, Matthew wants you and me to believe that this is the guy on which the church is going to be built, right? You must be kidding. But clearly, Jesus sees something. Clearly, through Matthew's lens, Peter has learned something. And perhaps equally clearly, we too might learn something from Jesus' teaching moment with Peter in this morning's Gospel. Throughout Matthew's account of Christ's life, Peter appears as the first among equals, the first called, the first to speak on behalf of all the disciples, and sadly, the first to fail. In no small measure, the Gospel of Matthew is as much an account of Peter's journey as it is Christ's. Peter's story begins with an affirmative response to Jesus' simple request to follow him. In the years that ensue, Peter repeatedly misses the point of Jesus' ministry, gets frustrated with concepts and people he doesn't understand, and only gradually, often painfully, begins to realize and affirm who this Jesus really is. Today's lesson is part of that turbulent journey. It's not the end, but it certainly is an important step. But before we get too far into that journey, I'd like to call your attention to the opening sentence. Although easily missed in a quick reading, 
The setting of this morning's gospel in Caesarea Philippi is not coincidental, nor is it an accident of geography. For generations, this city on the Mediterranean coast had been a site for cultic worship, first to the pagan gods Pan and Baal, and at the time of Jesus to the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus himself. However, in addition to its long-standing claim as a sacred space, Caesarea Philippi also was the site of the annual celebration of Rome's conquest of Jerusalem. Thus, the context for the conversation that takes place this morning is in a city which holds especially painful memories for Jews. A city remembered for religious humiliation, military defeat, and political subjugation. How ironic, then, that Jesus would choose this place, Caesarea Philippi, a place which challenges both religious and civil authority to ask the most penetrating, the most fundamental of questions. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now mind you, Jesus makes no claim about his identity. He makes no claim about his lordship or his kingship. He simply poses a question. One might wonder how it is that these disciples who've traveled so long and so far with him answer in such a flippant manner. Jesus, some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or some unnamed prophet. Clearly Matthew would have us understand that the disciples are trying They want to acknowledge Jesus, but they just don't get it. Perhaps it's understandable, both that the disciples and the larger crowds gathered around Jesus were befuddled, rendered unable to answer his question. But Jesus, perhaps in a moment of gentle mercy, refocuses the question distinctly on Peter rather than to the larger assembled gathering. Peter, who do you say I am? Pat, who do you say Jesus is? Clara, who do you say Jesus is? Edna. Who do you say Jesus is? That was the impact, the import of this penetrating question. Personal, direct. Unlike his hesitation on the Sea of Galilee, Peter steps forward and on behalf of the disciples tries to rescue them and unhesitating declares, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God that this disciple, who so recently was one of little faith and later would deny him, announces his divinity 
truly is astonishing. That Peter would do so in a location known for the worship of pagan gods is breathtaking. And that Peter would proclaim Jesus as Messiah, as king, in the face of Rome's authority, celebrated in Caesarea Philippi, is courageous beyond our imagination. To be sure, this truly was Peter's moment of epiphany. His insight and faith had developed incrementally, gradually, over some extended period of time. And his faith and insight were shaped by his experiences with Jesus, walking with him, dining with him, listening to him, debating with him. But this newfound faith of Peter's was not the result of some personal attainment, intellectual journey, or ancient Near Eastern altar call. Rather, the faith that Peter has come to embrace was nothing less than a gift from the hands of a gracious God. How much your journey and mine mirror Peter's. Daily we stumble in our attempts to live a life of compassion and justice. Daily our trust wavers in the face of overwhelming pressure to conform to a world where the care of self is more highly valued than the care of others. And daily our vision of Christ's unbounded mercy is clouded by seemingly unbounded suffering and evil. The unrelenting civil wars that plague so much of Africa and the Middle East, the burgeoning nuclear threat of an unhinged North Korea, and the violence that daily bloodies the streets of our community and so many others. To be sure, our journey, no less than Jesus' disciples, will not be an easy one. There is no cheap grace in God's kingdom. Yet at the very heart of this morning's gospel, is a promise, Jesus' promise of support, Jesus' promise of a community of comfort and nourishment, and Jesus' promise of the church, built on the faith to which Peter bore witness, that Jesus truly is the Son of the living God. For Matthew's emerging Christian community in the first century, this must have been encouraging news. Jesus had long since ascended into heaven, but he nevertheless remained fully present with them in their community, in what we now call the church. For us, for you and me, now centuries removed from this early group of faithful followers, the promise remains the same. Christ is indeed present in the lives we share with each other and with all those whom we might touch through our reach into the larger community. Present through Magdalene House. Present through Laundry Love. Present through Locket for Love. Christ is present in our shared life of worship and prayer, in baptism and at this Eucharistic table, in study, in reflection, in our gathered fellowship. 
Christ is present in the prophet's voice and servant's hands. He has given us to challenge the suffering and injustice in the world in which we live. Indeed, dear friends, Christ in us, Christ with us, Christ for us, for the life of the church and for the life of the world. And by God's grace, may it be so.